Cultivating Places made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Gwendolyn Wallace is an author, a historian, a gardener, and an activist. She graduated from Yale University in 2021 and is currently studying to receive her master's in public history from University College London. Joy Takes Root is Gwendolyn's debut picture book, inspired by her own experiences gardening with her grandmother in South Carolina. Her second book, The Light She Feels Inside, was published earlier this fall. In our ongoing exploration of who gardeners are, where gardeners are, and what they are growing in this world, I'm so pleased to welcome Gwendolyn to Cultivating Place. She is a perfect example of how plants and gardens help to raise us just as much as we raise them. Gwendolyn, it is such a pleasure to welcome you. Thank you. I'm so, so grateful and so glad to be here and so excited for our conversation. I would love to have you just tell us a little bit about your own relationship to plants in your life right now, and then maybe we'll go back a little bit to see what rooted that relationship for you. But first, maybe share with us the role that plants play in your life right now, Gwendolyn. Mm. Right now, I've been thinking about plants a lot as kind of a, maybe a stand-in or representation of stability in my life. So I went to boarding school for high school in New Hampshire. And so I have moved every year since I turned 13 and sometimes more than one time in a year to move to a different city to do a summer internship. Mm. And I think that really gave me a sense of kind of rootlessness. Mm -hmm. And that has only recently started to weigh on me. I just moved back to the States from London uh, where I was doing my master's in public history. And I keep saying on calls with my friends, you know, I just want a place where I can bring a piece of art and a big plant. And those are kind of my two, the two things for me, which feel like I live in a place that I, that is stable, that I can see myself living in for, you know, more than a year. And I think a big piece of art that is framed because right now I have a few pictures and frames, but they're kind of always the first to go, the big ones when I move and, you know, if they can't fit, they're not, they're not a necessity per se. And then same with big plants, you know, I have my plants in little pots or, you know, that I'm growing in mason jars or mugs that I have, but my big plants have to stay at my parents' house because again, they can't travel in in cars or planes. And so I think for me, the role of plants in my life right now is almost a, a wishful one is that I'm picturing a home that I can make for myself full of big plants just draping over the walls. And I'm, I'm keeping a, a note in my phone of the big plants, you know, the big trailing plants that I want to have in an apartment that I live in for more than a year. So I think, I think that's really interesting that as, as I've moved back to the States, because I couldn't bring any of my plants from London here that right. now they've kind of turned into this wishful, this very hopeful future, um, goal of living in a house with a big plant that I don't have to move in a year. I love it. And I, I, so 
take us back a little bit. You already started with this sense of um, of movement and a, a dynamic life since at least uh, high school when you were at boarding school. Take us back to where you were born and raised and who might have been the people or places or plants who grew you into a woman for whom plants might represent home and stability? Mm. I think, you know, going back to my childhood, I was lucky to have a wonderful, wonderful childhood that I look upon very fondly. And I think a lot of that was because of the relationship I had with the natural world. Uh, I grew up born and raised in Danbury, Connecticut, in a backyard with uh, lots of woods and trees. I grew up climbing trees and that was my favorite thing to do. And I also grew up up the street from a lake. And so I grew up kind of by by sea and by tree. Um, in in my backyard, one of the big landmarks in my childhood backyard is a huge rock we call the picnic rock. Because when I was a when I was a child, my parents and I would go and we would have picnics on the rock because it was big enough and tall enough for all three of us to kind of sit on and look over the backyard. So growing up with that, and then as well, I grew up uh, in a cul-de-sac with a lot of kids my age. And so how we spent our time, especially in the summer when we weren't playing kickball or baseball in the cul-de-sac was kind of traversing through our backyard, climbing over trees, you know, walking over trees like they were a balance beam, which was always fun to me because I, I grew up as a competitive gymnast, but also, you know, testing each other's limits, daring each other to eat worms or, you know, put our <laughs> hands in mud that was particularly gross or sticky, you right. know, or climbing trees into dangerous places. And I feel really lucky that I had parents and a really supportive neighborhood community who let us do that and who let us test our limits as if we were by ourselves. Now I think that I'm an adult. I know that they were simply looking out their back windows, watching us the whole time. My mom always tells me now, yeah, we were just communicating, you know, oh, who's, whose backyard are the kids in? But at the time it really felt like we were explorers on yeah. our own. And yeah. it was an amazing way to grow up. Um, and I think it kind of gave me this, how hard could it be mentality mm -hmm. that I think is still part of my life now. I think it, I, I truly believe that anything I try or want to be good at, I, I could be half decent at. Um, and I'll try anything once, you know, even, even if it is eating a worm. And I think a lot of that came from being able to test out our limits through nature and with nature um, mm -hmm. in a safe environment. Yeah. Yeah. And that sense of curiosity and liberation and empowerment, right? Like I can go exactly. and do this and, and, and I'll figure it out. And that's a beautiful gift uh, if you are allowed it in childhood. Yeah. So you go off to boarding school at the age of 13. And yes. uh, this is an experience you and I share. And what then leads you towards what will ultimately be advanced research in public history. Take us on your kind of academic career that leaves you rootless in one way, but gives you great direction in other ways. Mm. I think it's it's really interesting because I think so much of my life has been a a circling back. And I think I'm finding that really, really funny now. Um, I'm 24, but I think almost all of the interests that I have, the things I like to do, um, the things I like to read, the people I like to hang out with and the things I like to do with them are all very much the same as they were when I was a child. And I'm finding that very interesting. So I think throughout my my whole life, I have identified as a writer. 
really. I kind of grew up wanting to write. I wrote all the time. I wrote about everything. I wrote poetry. Um, I think my longest work of fiction was a story about a young girl who is best friends with a dragon. And it spanned four different composition books. And I had my mother's, one of my mother's best friends type it up for me. And this must have been when I was, you know, seven or eight. God and, love her. <laughs> <laughs> right? You Which and now, her. Yeah. Right. That's such a huge ask. But again, I think I was, I was just so lucky to have so many people who said, oh, you want to do this, go for it. So I, I was a writer in eighth grade. I was, you know, kind of crowned the poet laureate of uh, my middle school. And I said, okay, I'm a writer. I'm a poet. And then when I got to high school, I just became very uncertain of that. And I think like a lot of people, right, you're 13, you're 14. Those are kinds of times, I think, when you're forming and you're coming into yourself, but you're also coming out of yourself in a lot of ways. I think I became conscious of myself in ways that I wasn't so much growing up. I became more insecure. Um, And I think a lot of that had to do with also understanding what it meant to be a Black woman. I think that was something I was both lucky and not lucky to really think about growing up. And that Mm -hmm. really hit me in high school. I was around people, you know, who had gotten awards for their writing and who had, you know, written for magazines and on stages. And I said, oh, you know, this this isn't me and this couldn't be me. And so I kind of said to myself in about probably ninth or 10th grade, I need to come up with a different track for myself. And I decided that that would be science. I always loved science museums. And I said, okay, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. And I really put a lot of my effort into science and math and I loved it and I still do. But I said, okay, I'm I'm not going to be a writer. And that honestly carried all the way up until almost my senior year of college. I started college as pre-med and then I switched to neuroscience and then cognitive science. And I was very interested in becoming a neurobiologist. Um, And I did not creatively write, I would say, from 10th grade to my junior year of college. I didn't creatively write at all. I didn't identify as a writer. If you asked me if I was creative, I would have told you no. Yeah. And so it actually wasn't until COVID and I was back in my childhood home. And that is also when I wrote both Joy Takes Fruit and The Light She Feels Inside Ah. that I found my way back back to creative writing. Yeah. Um, and it was through children's literature yeah. and having a garden at my parents' house. And so mm. that kind of entirely came came full circle, which was really, really amazing. Amazing. And I part of me wants to go back and hug that Gwendolyn who got into the bigger pool and went, okay, never mind. Actually, maybe I'm not a writer, right? But yeah. at the same time, that little Gwendolyn had things to learn. And I can see your advanced understanding of public history and neuroscience and and biology in both of your books, which I love, but it also includes that creativity and your personal story in mm-hmm. such such a um, a beautiful embedded way. So you are finished with your both your undergraduate at Yale and uh, your your advanced work over in London. Is that right? Yes. I just finished my master's in public history at University College London. Woo. And <laughs> so you, 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 like everyone, experienced lockdown, went home, and 
Take us back to the germination story for these two beautiful uh, works of children's literature. Joy Takes Root published earlier this year in June of 2023, and The Light Mm -hmm. She Feels Inside has just published October 3rd of 2023. Take us back to the germination story of these two books. Yes. So I think I have to, I have to kind of detail my lockdown experience a little bit um, because it affects how I tell this story. But I was in my junior year of college in March, 2020, and I had actually taken that semester off to study abroad. And so I was doing a multi-country study abroad program on community health and social movements, where we were traveling to New Delhi, India, Cape Town, South Africa, and then Sao Paulo, Brazil, each one for a month. But what happened is we got about two weeks into South Africa. So we had spent a month in India, two weeks in South Africa before um, the COVID pandemic started to get quite bad. And my study abroad program concluded. And so we had to, two days after figuring this out, all fly back home to the US, which was shocking enough. And it was shocking enough to be back in my childhood home, which I hadn't you know, really lived in again since I was 13. Mm-hmm. But there were, I believe, 18 of us on the trip and just on our travels back into the U.S., a third of us actually got COVID, um, including me. Uh. And this was very scary because this was March 2020, right? There was there was no vaccine yet. There was still kind you of didn't confusion. Know, right? you, yeah. didn't, you didn't know. Exactly. We didn't. There wasn't a lot of, you know, good public health information. It was really hard to get a test. You know, I was lucky that I was able to call my pediatrician who had been my doctor since I was a baby and say, you know, I'm feeling really sick. I just came from abroad. I think something is very, very wrong and actually even get a test. And it came back positive. And so my parents did their best to quarantine me in my childhood bedroom. So I was there for about for two weeks, for about 23 and a half hours a day. You know, they would they would leave my meals at the door and I would open. But then unfortunately, they also caught COVID and we all got very, very sick. And, you know, luckily everyone was okay. We all recovered. Everyone is alive. But I especially um, dealt with a lot of long COVID symptoms that I'm still dealing with. Mm. And so it wasn't just, I was sick for two weeks and then I was better. You know, I lost my taste and smell for over a month. And then I just Mm. felt very weak and lethargic and tired. And I had a lot of brain fog, um, which I'm still dealing with, but was really, really, really horrible around that time. So my memory of that whole time and actually of writing both of these books is a little foggy, which is interesting. Yeah. But I was just moving very, very slow. I wasn't feeling like myself. And I think as somebody, I did my undergrad at Yale and as somebody who was used to working very, very hard and kind of staying busy all of the time, it was a real shock to, you know, not even be able to stay awake through a whole day. And I had to really sit with myself and undo a lot of ableism that I had internalized about, you know, my worth as someone who works all the time. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of that was actually starting a garden. Uh, It was my mother's suggestion. Good mom. Good, good mom. Good mom. (laughs) Amazing, amazing mom. And of course, my dad, my dad helped us as well. But we, we we had a garden when I was a child. And so, you know, my parents said, well, if you're going to be here for a while, and I think a lot of people were picking up gardening during the pandemic as well. Oh, yes. We know this. You know, yes. yes, we know this. And so I said, okay, let's do that. And I think it really, 
became a place of healing for me at a time when my body wasn't healing like I wanted it to. I always say that the kind of time span of my body was getting confused. And so I was suddenly living on plant time. Mm. And that was incredibly healing that for weeks when I couldn't take care of myself, when I, you know, didn't even want to get myself a glass of water, I would still go outside and say, okay, but I need to take care of my plants. Tell us about that garden and what, what you and your parents planted. Yes. So we planted a number of things. It was kind of half herb garden, half vegetable garden. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that is kind of not to find my childhood, but my my dad is allergic to bees. Oh. And so um, we couldn't always have a lot of florals around the house. Mm -hmm. And so the plants that we often garden, right, were vegetables or herbs um, or things that didn't necessarily attract bees. And so I think it was mainly we had a lot of zucchini because I remember that the zucchini grew very fast and we suddenly had a lot of more zucchini on our hands than we had bargained for. Um, <laughs> we had strawberries, we had tomatoes, we had kale and spinach. And then also during this time in lockdown, I joined a Zoom class that was on African herbalism of the African diaspora. Ooh, and nice. so through that class, I was planting a lot of herbs. I was planting Tulsi. Um, I planted some okra. I was planting calendula. And we were learning how to work and make medicines with those herbs as well. And so it was kind of half and half. But I had definitely, it definitely became my, my thing mm -hmm. in the family with very little knowledge. And I was amazed at how much I could listen to the plants with yes little prior knowledge that, you know, there is a lot to learn with gardening, but I kind of forgot that my body, you know, had its own memories and my body also is part of the ecosystem yep. and has a kind of innate knowledge of how to work with plants. And I think at a time when I was feeling not right in my own body, being able to trust my body to take care of plants was probably the most healing thing for me. We're speaking today with author and historian Gwendolyn Wallace. Gwendolyn is the author of several kinds of books, including two recently published works of children's literature. Both stories are beautifully illustrated, they are magical, and they share forward stories and lessons for the ages. They are both rooted in the essential nature between us as humans and the plant and animal lives all around us throughout space and time. We'll be right back for more with Gwendolyn after a break. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the rich intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. For any of you that have listened to me for any amount of time, you know I am a fan of children's literature. 
and its great importance in imparting cultural values and cultural literacy. To see, read, and hear plant stories and plant knowledge shared across generations and across cultures is a great joy in these times. Works with such depth and richness as these are seeds, literally seeds, shared forward of what we value and what we tend to as our legacy from the past for the future. We're back now to our conversation with gardener and author, historian, and wonderful storyteller, Gwendolyn Wallace. As we come back, Gwendolyn is sharing much more about the germination stories for her first two works of children's literature. So the book that started first was The Light She Feels Inside. It was the book that, you know, got me into publishing, that connected me with my agent. That was the first manuscript I wrote. And... I wrote that manuscript in, I think, April, May. And this was also the time of a lot of protests, right? We saw so many different protests for racial justice. Yep. Um, yep. You know, I know I took my little sibling to their first protest here um, in our hometown, but we were also watching it on the news um, yep. in some of the bigger cities around the country. Right. And I think it was a really interesting moment to me where I was suddenly feeling a part of something so much bigger, a part of this global Black history of resistance, and also going through this very personal journey of feeling very sick and feeling maybe not worth um, what I was before, and just feeling very hopeless at the same time. And then both hopeless and full of hope at the news, um, you know, feeling a lot of grief for these Black people who were, who were being murdered, but also a lot of hope that people wanted to see a different world. And, you know, feeling maybe, you know, more than any other time in my life that that world was close to us. And the semester before, so my fall semester of my junior year in college, I had taken an early education childhood course. And so I was reading a lot of picture books and I was observing in a kindergarten classroom in New Haven. And so kind of picture picture books were on the mind. And as I was reading these picture books, I said, you know, I, I think I think I could do this. Um, and again, which I think comes from that childhood adventuring, comes from that childhood nature of, you know, how, how hard could it be? I think, I think I can do this. And so I would say it was a kind of composting in the back of my mind that mm-hmm. it was kind of, a, you know, an idea that I had put off, said, oh, you know, it would be fun if I could write a children's picture book and had just kind of been sitting there, you know, waiting, waiting to become something fertile. And then suddenly I was in my childhood home around my childhood books. And I had a lot of time on my hands. And I said, let me, let me write about what I'm feeling. You know, let me write about a little black girl who is both feeling hopeful and hopeless at the state of the world, at the state of her community, you know, at the state of her home. And let me write about how, how she's dealing with that, um, where she goes, which in her case was a public library as that was my safe haven and my place of freedom for a lot of my childhood. Um, you know, and who is she connecting with? Who is she reading about in the public library? And, you know, who are maybe the figures who look like her? Um, because this book also centers around Black women's history. So who are the Black women that she's learning about to deal with these feelings, to turn these feelings into change 
and to learn how to make um, her neighborhood a better place. Because I think, you know, being a child and especially being a black child and especially being a black girl, I learned very early to hide my emotions, right? That there were good emotions like happiness and excitement and there were bad emotions, you know, like anger and sadness and you should avoid those and nobody wants to see those. (laughs) Um, And, you know, for so many children and especially those who are most marginalized, those feelings right. intermix every day and so often right. and being angry isn't a bad thing. And so I wanted to write a book to children who are angry at the state of the world, who are not pleased with the things they see around them um, and want to make a difference and how to, you know, lift up those feelings um, and combine those with the love. Because I, I really do believe that anger and love comes comes from the same place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I just love this. So so the light she feels inside starts with a lovely little girl named Maya. And I love yes. that her name is Maya. And she starts off and the very first page in the um the illustrator on this book is Olivia Duchess. Yes. And the very first page is is this full size book, so both pages, of a group of children playing. There's trees, there's swings, there's balls, there's a little dog, there's four kids walking down the street, and Mm -hmm. Maya is glowing. And it says, some days Maya feels filled with light. And then we move through the book, and you very slowly, very organically talk about the way the light feels good. And the color of the light is is like an aura around Lil Maya. Mm-hmm. But then we get about, I don't know, four, five, six pages in, and we learn or are introduced to a different glow that Maya feels when she's sad or when she's she's angry. So take us take us with that towards, you know, the the culmination of the book and how both family and the public library and other adults in Maya's life kind of direct her toward how to embrace all of these different lights she holds inside of her. Mm -hmm. So Maya very much follows my journey, right? She goes to a public library and she seeks kind of refuge in, in her local public librarian who is named after my maternal grandmother, actually. And when we talk about Joy Takes Root, we'll talk about how that was right. um, inspired right. by my paternal grandmother. But there's a lot of different hints to my um, both sides of my family in the names, especially. So she goes to to Miss Scott and Miss Scott says, oh, you know, I know what you're feeling. And black women of the past have felt like this, especially black women who have gone on to make so much change. And so I have Maya kind of go in this in this surreal journey of meeting the Black women who I would say I learned too late in life. I would say this this was very much, you know, um, these were figures who I learned later in my life that, you know, I was not taught about in school, who would have made such a huge difference to me if I had learned about them um, when I was a child. And so, you know, just to name some of them, we have Ida B. Wells, we have Gwendolyn Brooks. It's funny, actually, that you bring up Maya Angelou, because so my full name is Gwendolyn Maya Wallace. Wow. And- my mother ch- chose to name me after her two favorite Black women poets who were Gwendolyn Brooks and Maya Angelou. So Aww. that's that's my own namesake. So we have Gwendolyn Brooks in there. We have June Jordan, who is my personal favorite essayist. And then we also have a group of Black women, the Kambahi River Collective as well, so that it's a story of the collective, right? And she sees how all of these women 
combined the deep love for their communities with this deep displeasure and these deep feelings of injustice about how they were being treated to, you know, make very tangible change in the world. And so she takes these figures back to her friends and kind of says, look, you know, look at, look at what we've done, look at what our history is. And then they work together um, to do something really great for their community. And, you know, I won't spoil it. So if you, if you want to see what that great thing is, um, you have to read the book, but I think it was really important for me to center children as change makers, because I I think we don't, we don't often see them as that. Um, And I think those of us who are socially inclined don't necessarily think about how we are including children in our social movements. Um, And also thinking about children as, as an oppressed group and the only oppressed group that we all are part of at some time in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, having um, done several interviews about children's literature and its importance in sharing information with children, sharing cultural values with with children, mm-hmm. and our overall sense of what is supposed to be included in cultural literacy, gardening among them. Yes. But your feeling as a, a Black woman, which is no doubt much stronger than my feeling about not having been introduced to these women so much earlier in our well-educated lives, mm-hmm. that, like that hits home for me as a white woman. Like, why didn't, why wasn't I taught this earlier, sooner, more, you know, specifically uh, and passionately? Like there, there was so much that came out uh, in the course of the last five years that I just like I knock myself on the head. You graduated from Yale. I graduated from Harvard. What the hell were these people teaching us? Because yeah. they missed yeah. out on a lot. So yes. <laughs> but one of the things I have noticed in children's literature is that because there are so many urgent lessons that we want to make up for, so much children's literature out there right now feels so dogmatic, uh, feels mm-hmm. uh, a little bit removed from the access points of imagination and uh, appropriate level engagement and and feels very dogmatic in a way that doesn't hook me. Mm. When I read your two books, I was like, she has done such a beautiful job incorporating really important information and messages at an imaginative and engaging way that's not just hitting a child over the head with, you should do it this way, you should do it this way, but just takes us on this storyline. And just kudos to you for this, because the imagination and delight are there uh, along with these important messages. And that's also what you are trying to do as a children's literature writer, uh, is how do you handle the heavy stuff? And you focus on what these women have done and what that helps Maya to see. So we hear about Ida B. Wells writing for the newspaper. We see, Mm -hmm. you know, a beautiful Nina Simone singing happily. So it's about their joy and their power and how that relates to what Maya has already experienced. And it flows really nicely, really, really (laughs) beautifully. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I definitely appreciate that. I think, you know, I, I didn't grow up um, with very many picture books that featured Black people at all. Right. And most of the ones I, I did were, you know, very historical. It was a picture book of Harriet Tubman, say. So I think it's such an honor to be part of such an amazing breadth of Black children's literature that exists now. Um, but I think, you know, as I was in this classroom, 
in New Haven in this kindergarten reading these picture books, I think I really found kind of a category of picture book that I wanted to see more of. Mm -hmm. And I think it was kind of between the, you know, love your brown skin and love your hair and being black is wonderful, um, which it is and self-love is important. And I love those books. And then also books, you know, that maybe are more historical, you know, something really about and that centers on emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think I agree that, you know, there's some children's literature that that can be dogmatic. Um, And I think that often it comes from speaking to children in in the, in the way that we've been taught to speak to children. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I think that for me, both of my books came from a place of, okay, I'm learning these lessons as an adult. How would I explain it to me as a child? Rather than saying, you know, what do children need to learn? Yes. And I think that from that perspective, what came to me, and I think, again, this came from working with plants and feeling connected to my body in a way that I hadn't before, is what worked for me for both of these books was really tapping into the embodied experience, what emotions feel like in our body, you know, whether it's gardening, you know, what does calmness feel like? What does peace feel like? What does that connection with the natural world feel like? And in this case, you know, what does anger feel like? What does joy feel like? You know, I never want to make kids feel like this should make you angry or this should make you happy. But instead, I hope it opens up, you know, a discussion in classrooms of what what emotions, what things that you see make you feel that deep, passionate burning. Yeah. Um, Because I think we all we all feel it. But I I didn't know how to name that. And I think that's what books have always given to me. Uh, the most important ones I've read, right, are, are a way to to bring a name to something I was feeling but couldn't describe. Right. And they help us understand our our human experience and exactly. our, our human nature. So I think from all standpoints, and trust me, the trees and the plants play their part very nicely here in the light she feels inside. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. So let's go from there to the second germination story, which is very focused on this human impulse to be in relationship with plants and other plant people. Tell us about Joy Takes Root. Yes. So Joy Takes Root follows a another young Black girl named Joy who is going through a day and her first time really planting in her Grammy's garden in South Carolina. And this was very inspired by my time gardening with my own paternal grandmother in in South Carolina. So going going back, you know, I have I have COVID, I'm recovering from COVID, I'm making this garden. And I think that all of those memories of spending time in my grandmother's garden had suddenly came they came back to me in a very embodied, emotional, tangible way. It was kind of, you know, I think it's so interesting that we all have these memories that we forget. And I think going down to South Carolina. And going through my grandmother's garden, and I remember she was she was kind of a master at propagation. And so seeing how she could cut something from another plant and then make it into a whole other plant, I remember as a kid was just, that was, you know, that was magic to me. It is. Um, it is. It is. And it is. And it's still amazing. You know, right. but I was like, why does she have this plant, you know, wrapped in a wet paper towel? And then suddenly I come <laughs> back months later and the plant is a whole new plant. As a kid, that's right. unfathomable. Yeah. But I, I'd kind of forgotten this. And then when I called her, you know, to tell her, oh, we're making this garden. She was so happy, you know, and she kind of, she told me, you know, I'm so glad that someone in the family is taking after me. And that was kind of a moment of familial connection, but also ancestral connection that I was able to 
foster with the natural world. And again, I began to see gardening, not just as a practice of me tending to the earth, but of the earth and my ancestors tending to me and of a way of a medium through which I could communicate with my ancestors. Um, and I think that that to me was also really life-changing. You know, I, you said, you said earlier, you know, we sing to plants, we talk to plants. And I think for the first time in my life, I was talking to my ancestors through plants. And that was something yes. I had never ever considered doing or thought about doing, but it, it became really important to me. And it became important to me to learn more about my heritage. My paternal grandmother is Gullah Geechee mm -hmm. and I can explain what that means, but that's also really important. It was important to me that I mentioned South Carolina by name in this book, because to be Gullah Geechee, um, Gullah Geechee people are descendants of enslaved Africans who were on coastal rice and island plantations between about Jacksonville, North Carolina and Jacksonville, Florida. And mm. because of their isolation, they were able to create a very unique culture, their own language, food yeah. ways, herbal remedies um, that are very specific and also very much tied to their West African indigenous roots, right. um, maybe more than some other pockets of the African diaspora in the U.S., you think indigo, you think rice exactly, cultivation, exactly. you think basketry, like this is all, all gifts uh, and, you know, stolen in many cases, but knowledge that comes to all of us from that ancestry and has enriched all of our lives along, along that coast and then radiating out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, connecting with that heritage and really seeing myself as kind of a daughter of the South in a way that I hadn't before. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw, I saw the South as someplace, you know, I went, I visited family, I left, but you know, I'm, I'm an, I'm a new England girl born and raised, but you know, the South is such an amazing, you know, it's just so spiritually rich. It's so rich in tradition. Um, and I think especially for the African diaspora, it is such an amazing location of black power and black resistance. And so to say, you know, this gardening knowledge in me, this way I'm connecting to the plants is coming from my Southern ancestors who were enslaved, who were taking care of the soil, you know, felt, felt really powerful. And I wanted to write a book about how that felt, how, you know, it feels to, to connect to the earth. And I think how it feels to have the earth love you back. You know, I yeah. think for a long time, I'd always considered myself an environmentalist. I've always been very concerned with environmental justice. But I think for a long time, I kind of thought of it in this Western capitalist way of we need to take care of the earth right. rather than, no, you know, it's a reciprocal relationship. We, we right. love the earth and it loves us back. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're speaking today with Gwendolyn Wallace, author, historian, and gardener. Gwendolyn's two newest books are both works of children's literature. They are beautifully illustrated, full of imagination and generation. They are both rooted in the essential nature between us as humans and the plant and animal lives all around us. We'll be right back for more with Gwendolyn after a quick break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer again. I love Gwendolyn's articulation, but also the agency of these two works of experience plus imagination plus embodied hope for better growth around the ideas 
that plants raise us. Our gardens, at their best and done well with the best of intentions, raise us to be better humans, just as we raise them with flowers and fruits and vegetables and habitats. If you have stories or examples of how plants or your garden has raised you, or even helped you to raise your family, I'd love to hear them. Like birth and labor stories, death and passing stories, our garden stories shared are one way we grow our best individual and collective futures. I think in many ways, this is the subplot, the substory, if you will, of the habitat that is cultivating place and this community. I enjoy every one of these stories and every one of them grows me. We're back now to our conversation with Gwendolyn Wallace, gardener and author, historian, and wonderful storyteller. This week um, is Band of Books Week. And so I think, you know, banning books is becoming a really, a really big national conversation. Yeah. But I think in, in picture books, we talk a lot about representation and the importance of representation. And to me, you know, I, I think representation, again, is crucial, is critically important. But I think also it was important to me that I didn't just write a gardening book that could be any child, you know, but in this case, she's black. It was really important Definitely. to me that I, yes. that I wrote about, you know, interacting with plants and the natural world in a way that really only, you know, black and indigenous people can understand, mm-hmm. but in a way that also can resonate with all of us, you know, but it was, it was about writing about plants and taking care of plants in a, in a black way. Yep. And so I think sometimes representation misses that is it isn't just, you know, making all of the characters different races, right? It's also writing about topics that have not been explored from our very unique perspectives. Definitely. And and I will say, you know, given a couple of interviews I have had about this very subject is that it reclaims a space that was always yours, but was made invisible by so much media uh, and not including this representation. So this is such, exactly. a, a, such a redemptive act. Yes, no, I, I definitely see it that way. And so I see it very much as an act of reclamation, which I, which I would yep. say is the, is the journey that Joy goes through in this book, right? She goes, yes, she does. Through, she goes through her grandmother's garden. You know, it's amazing to her. She's feeling the soil. Um, and she has this moment with her grandmother really teaching her that planting is more than just putting a seed in the ground, right? It's putting your intentions into the soil. It's listening to the songs of the water. It's thanking the earth. It's thanking your ancestors. And then Grammy kind of turns to her and says, okay, you know, your, your turn. And she says, oh, oh no, you know, I don't, I don't think I could do that. And her, her Grammy kind of says, oh, you know, you know, trust me, trust me on this one. Um, and she goes back home. You know, and she doesn't necessarily believe in herself, but she's trying. I, I should just note right here while you're talking <laughs> yes. that the, these illustrations and these ones are by Ashley Corin. Is that how I yes. say her last name? Yes. The, the the look on little Joy's face as she's trying to grasp what her Grammy wants her to do. Like, it's so evocative. Yes. No, Ashley, Ashley just killed it. And so and the texture, like you can feel, I don't know what technique she used. I am no artist, but you can feel the dirt 
Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. And the leaves and even like the veneer on Joy's little yellow boots, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's, you know, even the wind and the air, the water, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's amazing. She, she did an amazing job. And I'm, I'm always so amazed by what illustrators um, can do and, and what they bring. But yeah, so she goes home and suddenly, you know, she grows this plant, this one seed that her Grammy gives her into this beautiful garden. And it's really a journey, right, of not just trusting her plants, but also trusting herself and the knowledge in her body. And, you know, she realizes all of the hopes and the dreams and the wishes that her grandmother has for her who, you know, have a similar relationship with the natural world, a reciprocal one, one full of love um, and one full of looking to the future, but also to the past. Yeah, it's, it's a powerful, and, and one line in the book just floored me um, in its elegant simplicity. But when, Grammy says to, you know, sort of frustrated and a little worried Joy, she says, don't worry, listening takes practice. And it just, mm. I just was like, oh, that is a beautiful line, Gwendolyn. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's definitely, it's definitely one of my favorites and definitely something I had to learn and I am still learning and probably will be learning for the rest of my life. Amen. That that goes for all of us, I, I am afraid to say, but yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. People can find your books wherever they get books. Is that correct? Yes, yes, absolutely. I always push, you know, go to your local independent bookstore. And if you don't know what that is, you know, find out what it is. I think it is so important to support our local businesses and especially local book buyers and booksellers. So I always recommend people go to independent bookstores, especially those owned by queer people, by people of color, you know, by women, by gender nonconforming people. Um, It's so important. And then I think also, you know, find find your library. Yes. Um, once and again, they, libraries. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Libraries are so important to me. And you can request books to be stocked at your local library and then other people can find them. Yeah. Um, and more people, more people need to do that, you know. And if you don't have a library card, get a library card because it takes yeah. five minutes usually. Yeah. And if your library doesn't have it and you have the ability, go ahead and buy it for your library. Donate yes. it to your library so that others can read it too. They they are a beautiful pair of books. If you were to say what your reader level for the books is, just for listeners out there who might be thinking of things like holiday presents, Gwendolyn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I mean it's a very important time to think about holiday presents. I mean, like you said, I mean I think I think it's for all of us. I think it's you know lessons that I am trying to learn as an adult still. But I think, you know, these are picture books. And so the main age is maybe, you know, three to eight. But I think, you know, as soon as it's important to read to babies. So reading to babies is important. And I think, you know, for kids a little older than eight, that you can actually go on a deep dive of the women and the light she feels inside. You know, I think I didn't want to give huge histories of this women, more just a little a little seed of, you know, remember these women, you know, you can do some more research. You should so that when their name comes up later in your life, you know. But I think, you know, we typically say around around three to eight, but I think there is there just definitely some flexibility with that. And I think all adults would be better for reading some more picture books. (laughs) I I agree. And and there is nothing like a picture book on a day. You just need a little comfort. (laughs) Exactly. It is. It is like a warm, a warm cup of tea. It is. It is. So just out of curiosity, any plan for a board book for either of these? Um, Not that I know of so far. I would love to see a board book. I would love mm-hmm. to write a board book yeah. um, at some point. So yeah, not not that I know of, um, but I'm definitely open to all kind of routes and options to get these books into as many hands. I get these themes into as many 
um, hands as possible. You know, maybe I'll, yep. maybe, you know, in the future I'll, I'll write of, about similar themes, but in more of a board book um, tone for younger kids as well. Right. Well, I would love to get them into as many hands and hearts and minds as, as we possibly can. And thank let, you. Let them grow into the gardens they, they will grow into. Um, thank you. You know, as you think about your own wishes for your future and those large plants that will uh, be partners in your life uh, when you settle somewhere, is there anything else you would like to add for listeners who are who are likely gardeners and family people just about the importance of these relationships in our lives, Gwendolyn? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, you know, on, on a recent interview, someone asked if, if the two books are related or what I see as the link between them. Both are about hope. And I think both are about seeing seeing children in a different light. But I think especially, you know, when it comes to the natural world, I think for a lot of us who are gardeners, are engaged with the natural world, um, and especially for those of us who study really, really often horrible and traumatizing histories, so often I see stories of environmental right, exploitation and degradation um, and of course, the climate crisis and, you know, the fact that apple picking is hard this year. And I see a lot of really horrible stories about nature and the natural world. Mm-hmm. But I think to remember that also every day there are little people and there are big people as well, making new and beautiful healing relationships with the natural world. And I think to keep both of those things in mind is something that really that really keeps me going forward, that, you know, just as much as we're fighting environmental racism and environmental injustice we are also we also need to turn our sights to how we foster and make those reciprocal relationships in our own lives and especially with um the children amongst us because they they are they are the future and there always will be children to learn and to marvel about the natural world and we need we need to be able to hold both yep last question bonus question here gwendolyn <laughs> okay okay you are on that beautiful desert island that might be the low country. Okay. What are the five plants you would not want to garden or live without? Five. Could be a genus, could be a family, could be a species, but five. And and why for each one? Okay. Okay. This was this was so this was so hard for me. <laughs> it's hard for everyone. I, that's I why know, that's why it's a fun question. I know, but it is, it is, it is so fun, but, but it's so hard. Um, and so we're assuming that all of these plants like can be grown. I don't necessarily need yep. to need to. Take- you are in the most ideal climate ever. Okay. 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 Yep. Okay. That's that's helpful because I don't I don't know too much about super desert climates. All right. Um, but I think you know I I just my thought process for this right is covering my bases in terms of what what I like to eat. Yep. Um, what I like to to look at. You know, I think I think of beauty, and I think this actually goes back to our beginning of the interview. You know, with my plant and uh, a big frame piece of art on the wall. Right. Is that to me? Yeah. I, I love my things and I see beauty very much as a necessity. You know, I think, I think it's, it's necessary for us to cultivate beautiful things. It isn't, it isn't necessarily a luxury. And so I'm thinking, okay, what I, what I like to eat, what I like to look at. And then I think what, what kind of heals me both mentally and physically. So I think, I think we need to cover, we need to cover all of those. Got it. Um, okay. And so I think number one, I would say definitely a pothos plant. Okay. Um, I think I really, I fell in love with those. They were the first plant I ever propagated. They're quite easy to, um, and they're, they're a plant I really fell in love with during my time at home. Uh, they travel really well. 
And I think they're a really lovely way to mark time. I think when I, when I've said, you know, I've been on plant time, I think my pothos have really been a marker of that because they, they grow so quickly. They're a lovely trailing plant. And you can really just see time passing with those. And I think if I'm on a desert Island, keeping track of, of time and its importance would be critical. And so I think a pothos would help me do that. Okay. Um, number two, Two and three, I'm a, I'm a huge fruit person. Um, and so I would say strawberries mm-hmm. um, and an orange tree. Okay. Good. A lot of vitamin C. You're, you're covering well, yes. your, your nutritional bases too. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I need some nutrition. Um, also very hydrating, you know, plants. Wa- oranges are, you know, mostly water, but also, you know, different, different cultivation patterns, you know, picking off a tree versus going on the ground and looking for the strawberries. You know, mm-hmm. I think those two will, will keep me entertained gardening wise. And also I just love strawberries and oranges. Okay. For, for beauty, I think hydrangeas. I love, I love hydrangeas. I think they're beautiful. I think I would love to be surrounded by them. And then I also think I'm a huge tea drinker. I think tea is super healing. It's super important. So I definitely need some sort of plant to dry out and make tea. And so I'm going to go with mint. Okay. I think, I think mint. So we have pothos strawberries, yep. oranges, hydrangea, and mint. I think that would, that would be, that would, that, yeah. that's, that's all my bases covered. <laughs> you have a, and you have a beautiful collection there of a small tree. Uh, so you have your canopy layer, you have your mid layer with the pothos and the mint, mm-hmm. and then you have your ground cover layer with the strawberries uh, and then the hydrangea just fill out right in between everybody else. Um, exactly. I wanted a very filling yeah. plant. Yeah. I like it. Beautiful, a beautiful island scheme. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Gwendolyn Wallace, it has been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you for these two additions to uh, really good children's literature. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a nourishing and healing and just delicious conversation. And I hope that, you know, so much, so much more grows from this. Gwendolyn Wallace is an author and an activist, a gardener and a storyteller. She graduated from Yale University in 2021 and received her master's in public history from University College London. Joy Takes Root is her debut picture book, inspired by her own experiences gardening with her grandmother in South Carolina. Joy Takes Root was published earlier this year. Gwendolyn's second picture book, entitled The Light She Feels Inside, was published earlier this fall. Join us again next week when we are joined by another plants person inspired to grow all of us, from the youngest of us to the oldest of us. Riz Reyes of RH Horticulture and Land Wave Gardens is a gardener, a teacher, a designer, and a cut flower grower. His work has also germinated a wonderful resource for families with children of all ages entitled Grow, a family guide to plants and how to grow them, which is richly illustrated by Sarah Boccaccini Meadows. That's next week, right here, listen in. 
Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Haracha, weekly show transcripts by Doulis Transcription. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Oh, I love you more. Oh, 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 oh,